as you become more involved in gambling and your engagement increases, your frequency increases, the more likely you are to experience adverse consequences. In the UK, we have a complex relationship with gambling. The government licenses the National Lottery and uses profit from that to fund our arts and museum sector. Horse racing is a national TV event and we've seen a proliferation of betting shops on our high streets. At the same time, there's increasing acceptance that gambling causes huge problems for some people to the extent that it's been termed a hidden epidemic and a public health problem. And it's to that point that the authors of a new analysis have written in the BMJ. If we see gambling as a public health problem, why aren't we treating it as such? I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. And to talk about that, I'm joined in this studio by Heather Wardle, Welcome Humanities and Social Science Research Fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Rachel, thanks for popping in. Thank you for having me. Um, So yes, uh, what you're saying effectively is that, in the UK anyway, gambling is kind of talked about as a public health problem, but it's not really tackled as a public health problem. Can you sort of uh, take us through your your arguments a little bit there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we've seen increasingly in the past couple of years that people come out and talk about gambling as a public health issue. The Labour Party have come out and called gambling the hidden epidemic. Um, The Gambling Commission, the industry regulator, have, have said the same. And that's great. It is absolutely fantastic that people are recognising that there is a public health problem related to gambling and that the harms can be broad and diverse and there's an impact on society. But what we're not seeing as yet is actions that actually follow up from that. So if you define something as a public health issue, actually what you need is a public health response and public health actions to be able to deal with it and address and tackle those harms. And so our paper calls for those actions to happen and makes an assessment of the kind of policy area and the funding environment, looking at the barriers that stop those things potentially from happening at the moment. Mm. And I suppose maybe this is worth sketching out for people outside of the UK. Um, How is problem gambling, if someone feels like they've got an issue with their gambling, how is that tackled at the moment? So problem gambling is defined according to the um, American Psychiatrist Association Diagnostics and Statistics Manual 5 um, as a behavioural addiction. Um, and there's a series of criteria, about nine different criteria, the, of the types of behaviours that people have to exhibit to be defined as being having a problem with their gambling, disordered gambling as they call it. And it's things like chasing your losses, having increasing tolerance um, to gambling, being preoccupied by gambling, risking a job, a relationship and uh, other opportunities because of your gambling. Now that's a very narrow focus based on a range of clinical criteria to define somebody as having a mental health disorder. And that's quite different from thinking about the consequences of gambling that impacts on people's lives or on society more generally. And one of the things that we are arguing for, along with some of our other colleagues who have been making this case in Australia and and other jurisdictions, is that you need to have a broader focus. You need to think about the different range of consequences that gambling can have on people's lives. And you might not necessarily need to be a 
problem gambler to experience harms from gambling. You can um, experience negative financial consequences. It can have an impact on your relationships. It can have an impact on your on your health and well-being more generally. So a bit like the redefinition that's happened with alcohol studies where we've moved from thinking about problematic individuals to thinking about the harms related to alcohol it's the exact same process with gambling and trying to think about this in a in a broader way and thinking about the consequences across a whole range of different levels so the consequences to society to communities to families and also to individuals mm. and the in your paper about you know talking about definition here that i thought uh, which i hadn't heard before was that someone who does have problematic gambling will not necessarily always have it it's a a space that people move into and then maybe they get some more control and then they lose that and so it's it's quite hard to actually uh pigeonhole someone as as you know being a person with an issue with gambling. Yeah, so what, what limited longitudinal research we have shows that there's a high degree of churn between people moving in and out of problematic behaviour. So one of the things in Britain we talk about all the time is what's, what's the prevalence of problem gambling? And the estimate tends to be just under 1%. But one of the things I like to point out all the time is that's not the same 1% of people every time we measure it year on year because there are people moving into problems, moving out of problems all the time. And you have that, that churn and that degree of um, instability in people's behaviours. Now, what that means and what we argue is that when you've got such a high degree of uh, churn like that, actually you need to be focusing your attention and your resources on preventing people having escalating problems. Mm. And that's an interesting sort of flip in the way one would think about it. Again, looking at this as a public health problem, that it's not a sort of linear cutoff. There's a there's a risk. There's a spectrum of risk, and and that will change the way um, those interventions would be designed. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in the past 20 years or so, there's been a real focus on this notion of the problem gambler being about 1% of society and that actually, you, you, do you how, how do you deal? Do you just deal with that 1% and leave the other 99% alone? Actually, what we're saying is is that is not a reasonable assumption that we're talking about harms that are much broader, that affect many more people, that affect people that don't even gamble themselves. And that flips around the types of interventions and things that you might do, the types of actions you might take to to prevent those harms from happening, and actually puts it much more firmly in the domain of thinking about, well, what do we do at a much more societal level, at a broader level, to help prevent these harms? Um, rather than just thinking about how do we inter- interfere or focus on these this one percent of uh, of problematic people. Yeah, kind of controlling the symptoms, not the. Yeah, the exactly. Um, now you alluded to uh, a kind of analogy with alcohol there, and the way that that shift in our perception of alcohol and problem drinking has happened over time. Could you just yeah, broaden that out a little bit? Do you, how how much do you think gambling does actually follow that model? I think gambling has a lot of really strong analogies with alcohol because like alcohol, it's one of these activities that many people do. In fact, the majority of the population engage in gambling um, at some point in the in their lifetime and actually the majority take part in gambling on a yearly basis. Mm. I mean, I certainly buy lottery tickets and things. Exactly, that's it. And there's a whole spectrum of the different types of activities that people engage in going right from you know, national lottery tickets through to gambling and betting online. Um, and so on. Uh, and 
some people do that and have no problems whatsoever and do it and they enjoy it and they find it exciting and they find it fun. And then there are there is that kind of shade of risk that as you become more involved in gambling and your engagement increases, your frequency increases, the more likely you are to experience adverse consequences. Um, there's been some recent evidence that suggests that that might actually be a dose response relationship, um, which hasn't been the way that gambling has traditionally been thought about. Uh, that's that's quite new and it needs exploring further. But again, that also, if that's true, that then makes you think, well, we need to think about more societal level interventions and, and actually how we promote and permit gambling as a society and better protect people. Mm. And one way in which, um, I suppose, in, in a similar way to alcohol, again, alcohol we've seen in Scotland anyway, minimum unit pricing is a way to sort of tackle this. In the UK more generally, the government's just announced that they're, um, they're changing the rules around these fixed odds betting terminals so these are actually maybe you should explain what's going on uh, with them and and what they are but it it seems to be sort of a a similar approach to tackling them. Yeah so the fixed odd betting terminal case is really interesting so these are machines that exist in British bookmakers which are on high streets up and down the country and they tend tend or tended to be in areas of greater deprivation. And there was about 35,000 of these machines in communities across Britain. And the controversy about them was that they allowed a maximum stake on games like roulette of £100, which was completely out with the staking levels that you have on other types of machines in land-based venues in Britain. Actually, most of the slot machines, your maximum stake is about £2. So there was a big campaign to reduce the stakes down and there was there was evidence that they were consistently one of the types of activities that people said that they had the most problems with. And when you looked at the, t- the type of activities that actually contained the, the highest proportion of problem gamblers, they were always at the top of the list. So it's absolutely the right thing to do to look at this particular type of product and think, is this a risky product and do we want this in our society, in our high streets, in our communities and to take action? The issue is that you can't just view gambling as a single issue policy response, I guess. Um, there's there's definite suggestions that actually what people might do is move from playing these machines, because roulette was the most popular game, um, in their communities to playing them online instead. And online, there's no speed restrictions, there's no stake restrictions, there's no time of day restrictions. Um, and so you can, you know, arguably the same product in the different environment, which hasn't been addressed, could be even more risky. So it really points to the need to, if you're going to do anything about gambling, you really need to take a system-wide approach and think about how if you put a restriction on one part of the system, what other kind of protections do you need to put in place and, and other elements of the system? Mm. And you talked about going online and doing it. I mean, that means that it's cr- crossing international borders you know Gibraltar is a place where there's a huge amount of gambling because of that online gambling because of the way their sort of legal system is is set up um but that means that then it must be incredibly hard to tackle at a national level you must need to try and think about this internationally is there you know do you think there's a big international problem with this oh it's absolutely a global issue so the the types of arguments that we've put forward in our paper are not unique to Britain. It is something that needs tackling internationally. 
And what we're seeing is that other jurisdictions are increasingly opening up to gambling. So if we look at America, for example, which has had quite a specific uh, gambling environment with um, sort of pockets like Atlantic City or Las Vegas, actually state by state it is now starting to open up to sports betting. Quite a lot of the big UK brand name companies are setting up and developing partnerships in America um, and moving their kind of their expertise and their knowledge and their products over there. That's one of the the biggest new markets for them. But actually, we also see um, places like Africa being viewed as one of the next big jurisdictions for the gambling companies to move into. That's interesting. And then it's um, in some of the uh, East African countries there's some quite interesting dynamics going on because you've got things like quite big influxes of Chinese um, migrants and populations who are moving into these countries and they are traditionally a very sort of gambling heavy culture and because they're migrating into these East African countries the um, African nations are developing casinos and more liberal gambling policies to suit the new migrants who are bringing that culture with them so there's quite interesting dynamics that are at play here. Mm. I mean, and it's not obviously only China and the, the Far East that have a kind of cultural, I don't know, connectivity to gambling or, or entanglement. I mean, we do here in the UK, um, if you're bored, uh, we have lots of our arts funding, lots of our funding from, from museums and things comes from National Lottery, which is obviously a, a form of gambling as well. So we have a very sort of interconnected ecosystem here. Yeah, I mean, it is completely intertwined. And I think in Britain in particular, we have quite an ambiguous relationship with gambling. And there are forms of gambling that we tolerate and and downplay. Um, often the National Lottery is not presented as a gambling activity. Actually, it's the purest form of gambling that you can do. But it is like it is purposely downplayed that this is actually this is a game. This is a bit of fun. This is lighthearted. Um, we also, I mean, we're one of the few nations in the entire world that legally allows children to gamble on slot machines. Um, and that, you know, we have this kind of cultural heritage of the seaside arcade, um, the 2p penny falls, the uh, the kind of the children's slot machines and, and so on. And these things, are these are, the, these are the kind of gambling that's tolerated. And then as you kind of move up the spectrum of you know, arguably perhaps towards more risky um, gambling activities, you then you see that that's where more regulation becomes um, involved and, and people start to have more concerns about it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if it wasn't for tax revenues and the National Lottery good causes, you know, there would be so many um, cultural, art, science, sports, you know, uh, organisations that don't get the funding that they actually really need. So it, it fills a hole as well. Mm, and that's interesting. You say in the paper that you know, gambling is sort of regulated and it's not under public health at all. It's, it is under... Uh, uh, the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sports. Uh, and I, I think that is really telling about what the the position of successive governments has been on gambling. They haven't seen it as a public health issue. They've seen it as a le- leisure issue. And they've been very much focused on this mindset. Well, this is a leisure issue and we should allow um, competition and innovation between companies. We should allow it to be promoted. We should allow people to make responsible choices with a little bit of, well, and we need to protect some people from harm. But actually, the whole balance of this has been on promoting it as a valid leisure activity. 
when we're talking about this, if we're talking about this as a public health issue, I think we need to go back to that premise. We need to readdress that and think quite critically reassess it and say, yeah, have we really got that balance right between protecting people and promoting this? Um, my argument is that I don't think we have. I think we should be offering greater protections for people. Um, others will, will will disagree. Mm. And, and again, if we look at this as a sort of public health issue, it's a really thorny issue um it'd be you know you can go for prohibition because it's kind of so culturally entwined uh and in the way that alcohol addiction or or drug addiction or other things are done what fuels that um are kind of broader societal issues what makes a person become an addict is to do with disconnection is to do with you know lots of issues that are are much more broad and, and hard to tackle. Yeah, I mean, when we look at gambling, we see the exact same issues with gambling as you see with, say, alcohol misuse and abuse. Um, so you see the, the, sa- the same kind of harm paradoxes where people who are from more deprived circumstances are actually less likely to engage in the, in the activity. But if they do, they are much more likely to experience harms from, from that engagement. You see that kind of whole social inequalities being threaded through this um, and definitely narratives from some of the people that we've spoken to about actually you know, gambling to relieve and cope with the circumstances of their lives. And that's not just their personal circumstances, that's their economic and social circumstances. So actually, if you're really thinking about a societal level um, way to address this, you're really going back to hey, how do we address social inequalities in our society, of which you know, gambling, the manifestation of gambling harms, is one of those consequences. Mm. And that's a big question. To, it's a to... huge question to which I don't have the answer. I, I wish I did, but I, 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 I think it is really important to see you know, gambling is part of that same pattern that we view for many other um, health and well-being areas that we, we should be considering. And maybe by thinking of it as a public health issue, we can start joining the dots on these things. So alcohol, drugs, gambling are all facets of the same thing. And, and Yeah, exactly. There is, there, there's definitely a tendency with gambling to kind of treat it in a very siloed approach. And partly that's because of the way the legislation is framed and who has um, policy responsibility for it. But actually, I would like to see a much more joined up approach because actually oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes when you see people who are having difficulties with their gambling, they also have other mental health issues or substance abuse issues. So actually thinking about how you deal with that in a joined up way and perhaps deal with the overarching consequences of this more perhaps complex nexus of of, of issues that people have is has to be part of the answer. Of course, you know, many people have different pathways and that's not the case for absolutely everybody. So, you know, we, we need to be flexible. So, Heather, thanks for coming in and talking to us. The article that uh, you and your colleagues have written is called Gambling and Public Health. We need policy action to prevent harm. It's now available on bmj.com for everyone to read. Heather, thanks very much for coming in and talking to us about it. Thank you very much. I'll add links to that article in the podcast text, and this will be freely available for the next week or so, so check it out. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week. But you might want to check out our new podcast for students, if you've not done so already. Last week, I posted the first episode in our podcast stream, and now it's going to be out there on its own. So 
go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from and search for Sharp Scratch. In the episode we've just published, uh, we'll be giving advice to med students on how to make referrals without pissing off the med reg. As always, let us know what you think of this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, go on to bmj.com slash podcasts and you can find out there how to get in touch with us. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.